Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. First, the Jew and also the Greek. For in it, that is for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Fathers, disciples of Jesus Christ, we want to be ashamed of the gospel. We want to run toward the gospel, embrace the gospel, declare our need for the gospel day in and day out. We know because of the gospel, it is your power at work, your power to save everyone who believes, regardless of race, culture, nationality, upbringing, you do the work, God. That's what we've been reading in Galatians. That's what we just see here in the book of Romans. You are at work. You're at work in this small church plant. You're at work in our communities. You're at work in our homes. And so we thank you. If we thank you that it's your power that saves, not ours. But it's you, O oh God. And so this morning as we turn to the preaching of your word. May your power to save and sustain continue to go forth. Build us up this morning through the preaching of your word. Right now, they're just words on a page. And so, Father, for you to reveal the Son more to us this morning, we need the Holy Spirit to come and take these words and implant them into our heart. So we ask that. And we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to dive right into it. Um, you know, I'm, I used to say this a lot growing up. I'm kind of an open book, and um, this is one of those open book moments for me. Um, there are some sermons, more than others, in terms of like the preparation process that um, I could just, I know the Holy Spirit's like working on my heart. Like, I just, you can't run from it. You can't deny it. There's something going on, and I've, and, the, and I need to pay attention. This is one of those sermons, and if I can be brutally honest, and, um, and, it, and it was sweet. It was hard, but it was really, really sweet to think through this text and to pray through this text and to prepare this text. So my hope this morning is that God would meet you as well as his word goes forth. So if you got your Bible, you know that we're in the book of Galatians. You can open up right there. We are in chapter 2. As a reminder, we love preaching through books of the Bible, in part because of texts like this. Um, you, you can't avoid the hard texts. <laughs> You're forced to get into it, and we take our messy lives, and we look at the Bible, and we, we ask God, help us to apply this to our messy lives. So Galatians 2 Verse 11, and we're going to go all the way to verse 16. So this is God's word for us this morning, us who braved the, uh, the conditions. So here we go. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face, that's Paul speaking, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you, Peter, force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In October of 2013, I was saved by the grace of the gospel. I was about 23 years old. I was running away from God until His irresistible grace, the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit, drew me to God and showed me Christ. Um, I'll never forget the moment when um, I was in my room. I was crying. I repented of sin. And I turned to Christ with the faith God had given me. Um, at that moment, when I was saved, so much changed. In an instant, a ton changed. While I stood before God justified and changed, I did realize until Jesus comes back, fighting against sin is still a reality. Right? Anyone who's a disciple of Jesus Christ walking with the Lord knows that's an ongoing reality until Jesus comes back. We're fighting against sin. While the power of sin doesn't have a hold on us, it lures us, it woos us, and we fight. In other words, while I, I knew and I know that I was saved, the process of this word called sanctification, a theological word, it was going on. That means my relationship with God was growing but this was real, and it was necessary and sometimes painful. This growth process was painful. It took a while for me to put away several of my sin habits. And what I mean by that, it's just you got to know my past to understand what was going on. Like I was in, think of a sin, and it's probably there. And there's some things that seem to fall off immediately, and there's other things where it's like, why can I not beat this? What I realized, there were moments when God would convict me, um, rightly, for believing in Jesus, but not living for Jesus. I was acting contrary to what I knew to be true. I remember a time, after I was saved, I moved out of this apartment when I was living with this girl, moved into a kind of house with a bunch of other guys, and um, one of my roommates, who's Christian, great brother, he, we couldn't be to you know, more polar opposites. 
but he was a great brother in Christ. And here's one reason why. He, 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 he caught me in one of my sins. And he had the courage to approach me. He said, Sean, you are not living in step with the gospel. You are not honoring God with your actions. I look back on my, f- my former roommate, one of them, and I, and I thank God he had the courage to confront me in love. He, his courage created a turning point in one of my battles against a particular sin. I, I thought of this personal moment that I just shared as I was thinking about Paul's confrontation with Peter that we read this morning. I can empathize with Peter. If I was with Peter, I probably would have done what he had done. And I can thank God for Paul's courage. What we read in verses 11 to 14 is perhaps the most significant example given by Paul to the churches in Galatia about what it means to live out what you believe. To say it negatively, which is what we read today, Paul tells us what it looks like to not live out what you believe. It is after this last personal example in verses 11 to 14 where Paul's letter will begin to shift toward his theological argument. Up to this point, Paul has been arguing that you can't add or take away from the finished work of Christ. You cannot add or take away from God's saving purpose for an individual. And so by the time I'm done this morning, we will see in greater detail how how God saves a person through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at a deeper level. How does God do that? We, we throw that language around all the time, and rightfully so. It's in the scriptures. We're saved, but how does that happen? It's important, and that's where, that's where Paul, as he, after he kind of rebukes Peter, that's where, he leads, that's where he leads Peter, and he leads us this morning. But first, here's how we've gotten to this part of the book of Galatians so far. So quick review. In chapter one, Paul lays into the Galatian church because They believed in a false gospel. He's like, guys, stop it. Listen. So he just kind of lays into them. This is one of those letters that Paul writes where it's like kind of uncomfortable. He's kind of angry. The false teachers came into the churches after Paul left, and they were preaching Jesus plus works as needed to be saved. Paul advances his argument and displays his frustration when he shares with the Galatians Uh, the events that took place when he went to Jerusalem in front of the apostles. That was last week. One of the apostles, as you know, was present was Peter. Paul tells us in Galatians 2, the apostles agreed with Paul that only faith in Jesus makes a person justified and reconciled before a holy God. Well, if you were reading the letter of Galatians up to this point, you'd be like, there seems to be some solidarity here. We had Peter agreeing with Paul about what it means to be saved. And then we come to this. And you're just like, what happened? What happened, Peter? What's the deal? We just read about Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles being in solidarity about the nature of the gospel. Now we read that Paul needs to confront Peter Because Peter's actions were inconsistent with the gospel. 
So once again, the scene has changed. Just like last week, the scene changed, and all of a sudden we're kind of in Jerusalem, and, and now the scene has changed, and we know that by this conjunction word in verse 11, but we have gone from the city of Jerusalem, verse 10, to the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire with a population around 250,000. Unlike Jerusalem, the Greeks made up the majority of the population with the Jews being in the minority. And let's just say, Paul's arrival in Antioch is going to create some drama. Like, things are about to get real. And what we have this morning is like an apostolic throwdown. What's going to happen? We should not think of the drama between Peter and Paul in the same way drama kind of existed with Paul and the Judaizers. Uh, The Judaizers being the false teachers who were teaching another way to be saved. The drama between Paul and Peter is a family matter. It was a public matter, it says in today's text, but it was a family matter matter nonetheless. Uh, Could you imagine, like, gathering around the Thanksgiving table, right? And then the tension, there's a tension between, like, two family members. You can, like, feel it. Then you have those folks around the table who are like, I want to see this. And then you have folks like me who are like, I don't want to see anything. This is going to be awkward. Just feel the tension. Just go away. You know, it's kind of like, it's a bit of what we got going on here. I say that Paul's confrontation with Peter is a, is a family matter, and unlike Paul's confrontation with the false brothers in Galatians 2.4, because we know that the unmerited grace of the gospel has saved Peter. We know he is free from the power of sin and death because of the gospel, which means Paul's arrival in Antioch um, comes with probably more tears than anything else. Right? Just like heartbroken. Peter should, should know better. We read, while Peter is free not to sin, he did make choices to sin. Peter knows the gospel. Because of sin, he was not living in step with the truth of the gospel. That was verse 14. How did sin manifest itself? Peter was acting like a chameleon. These animals that you see at the zoo, right? Peter was changing his colors depending on the company he was with. Paul calls him out. He says, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Right? So he's got some buddies that he's eating with. But when they came, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So here's what's going on. Peter was eating meals with the Gentiles, and then some ultra-conservative Jewish Christians came to town from Jerusalem. Then Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. Here's a bit of first century Jewish context, which will help explain Peter's actions and Paul's concern here. Meals, eating together for Jews, was very significant. Uh, To the point where all kinds of rules were in place before eating a meal. The rules were not just, hey, you got to wash your hands before you eat. They were much more intense. Uh, These rules were instituted in the Old Testament, And they were called ceremonial or clean laws. Um, 
the idea behind the clean laws is to allow Jews to draw near to God in an acceptable manner before a meal, to be clean before God. It would be like, it'd be like uh, my girls going out in the summertime and finding a dead squirrel, like, or whatever, dead animal, right? hope that doesn't happen, but I wouldn't be too shocked. And uh, they're playing with it, and all of a sudden I see that, and it's dinner time, and they come in, and I'm like, no, stop at the door, use the outdoor spigot, wash your hands and your entire body, be clean before you get inside. I want them to be clean. These, these clean laws also covered a number of foods which Jews were forbidden to eat. A lot of no-nos in regards to some of the dietary restrictions for Jews. Over time, these ceremonial laws were expanded to say the Jews could not eat with the Gentiles because the Gentiles were unclean. The Gentiles were unclean in part because they ate food forbidden by the Jewish law. You tracking? To think of it in modern terms, Gentiles loved bacon. Right? That makes so much sense to me. They loved bacon. And Jews were forbidden to eat bacon. Therefore, Jews were discouraged from eating with Gentiles. So the Gentiles did not have, like I said, the dietary restrictions. They surely did not have the hygiene, if you will, of the Jews either. Here's the extremely unfortunate evolution of the clean laws and Peter's situations, how it all connects. These religious clean laws eventually evolved into racial distinctions. In other words, religious practices were not used to honor God, but used to discriminate against the Greeks. So Peter's sin problem is not some inconsistency to observe or not to observe the clean laws. But when Peter was put to the test, he was treating other, another group of people as second-class citizens. He was expressing prejudice toward the Greeks. Peter was living contrary to what he believed about the gospel. Listen, it, we've all seen racism on some level, right? We live long enough to see it. I grew up in a town in Iowa where the KKK still marched and there were cross burnings. I'm only 37 years old. While I do not fully know the effects of racism, for sure, I've seen it, and I'm sure you have as well. The situation we read about in today's passage would be like me inviting everyone over to my house for a meal. Come on over. Um, we're going to eat bacon, right? Um, but I choose to not invite a few of you because of your, let's say, your economic status, the color of your skin. Who would you vote for? Well, if you vote for that person, you're not, you're not coming over, etc. There are many ways people express prejudice. Within the body of Christ, anytime you apply status to another person other than Christ, you will be tempted to treat that other person in a manner that does not honor Christ. And Peter was guilty. Why did Peter do an about face? 
Why was he eating with Gentiles one moment and the next moment he turned his back on the Gentiles? How did a table of unity, meals are a big deal, how this table of unity become a table of division? One answer is Peter gave in to peer pressure. Right? It says in verse 12, certain men from James went to Antioch to confront Peter. We don't know if these if they came right from the Apostle James or if they were like his overzealous groupies. Uh, the text doesn't inform us about that. I like to think it was just a bunch of groupies who came and they were overzealous. But, but what we know they were going to demand Peter to be obedient to the law. Peter was feeling the pressure and did not want to be accused of not fulfilling the law. So Peter gave in to the peer pressure and he turned his back on the very people he was eating with. So I hope you see what's happening here. One moment, Peter is eating bacon, and then the next moment, he became a pious Jew, all because he was trying to save face. So I have several comments about Peter's actions. and I, I have no doubt that Peter was still growing in his faith, right? Uh, he grew up a Jew. He had the law, right? Most of his life was trying to observe the law and being a good Jew, so while I will, I will not excuse Peter's sin, God did extend grace and mercy to Peter. We acknowledge that. Peter, like us all, are maturing in our faith to become more like Jesus. Also, it can be, it can be easy to take pot shots at Peter. Uh, you might remember Peter denied um, that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Not once, not twice, but three times, John 18. In Galatians 2, we see his belief was not dictating his actions. His fear motivated his actions, it says in the text. However, before we throw Peter under the uh, proverbial bus, let's just, let's just say this. We can all be like Peter. Every single person in this room. We can deny others so that we can fit into a specific group of people. We can be tempted to replace our faith with fear when making decisions. We can change the way we act when we're around specific company. And when the motive of our actions is self-preservation and reputation, we often live out of step with the truth of the gospel. We deny with our actions the very person we love, Jesus What all this means is that the drama between Peter and Paul is not merely a surface problem. Paul knows, and God wants us to see, that Peter's hypocrisy is not just a moral issue, but it's also theological. The problem goes all the way to Peter's heart. Hypocrisy um, is the charge Paul levels against Peter. Paul also says Peter's actions were leading others down the same path. Here again is verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, the people that were with Peter, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So most of us have heard of the word hypocrisy or hypocrite. We've all maybe used that word. In this situation, the actions of Peter Barnabas and the other Jews were not motivated out of conviction, but out of fear or, or self-preservation. So hypocrisy happens when our actions do not line up with our beliefs. 
The origin of the word hypocrite is interesting. I enjoyed learning this. Uh, the Greek word for hypocrite was used in Greek theater. Uh, it, it meant an actor or actress would perform using a mask, apparently trying to hide their natural self and pretending to be someone that he or she is not. So Paul's charge against Peter continues to have relevance today, especially in the church. Paul's charge continues to have relevance because we, like I said, all can act like Peter. Because this is true, I took time to ponder what lessons we can learn and take away from the dangers of hypocrisy, and what can we do to fight against hypocrisy. My mind, more as an application point, landed on two words. Two words. Authentic and honest. Authentic and honest Christianity will cultivate a culture of grace, mercy, and love. We want to be a church who is authentic or genuine about who we are in Christ. That we want to be honest that, that we are a work in progress. By God's grace, sanctification is happening. We all can admit to one another that we are growing. There's not a person in this room who is perfect. Newsflash, none of us are, right? And just can't we be honest about that? There's no need for a mask. There's no need to play act. There's no need for you to be someone who, that you are not. We should not be one kind of person on Sunday and then someone totally different Monday through Saturday. Enough people have walked away from the church because of a lack of authenticity and honesty. When folks walk away from the church, they view the lack of authenticity and honesty as hypocrisy. However, by God's grace, may that never be the case here at this church, this church plant, right? We can cut the legs off of hypocrisy by being authentic and honest with God and with one another. We can be authentic and honest with one another, knowing that this is a place of grace, mercy, and love. The same grace, mercy, and love that was extended to us, wretched sinners, we extend to others. Every, every person who comes in that door, every person who gathers around your table for a meal, every community group that meets, every discipleship group that meets, grace, mercy, Peter's hypocrisy also raises questions about the nature and influence of leadership. Uh, Paul and Peter were leaders, they were apostles. For Paul, Peter's actions are intolerable. One reason why his actions were intolerable is that Peter's actions led Barnabas, a close friend and man who had done ministry with Paul, he led Barnabas away from living in step with the gospel. Last, last week we read that Barnabas was this man of encouragement. He sold all of his money. He did missions with Paul. And Peter even led him astray because of his hypocrisy. So Peter's actions show us several things about leadership. And this got really reflective on me. I was thinking on my, my own leadership. When the gospel is not the anchor for pastoral leadership, it is only a matter of time before the gospel is compromised. 
biblical principles are compromised when the gospel becomes distant or a mere footnote to a pastor's faith. When a leader's heart and actions are, are compromised, he will lead others away with him. It's, it's no wonder we read in the New Testament that eldership has, actually has a really high bar. However, it's precisely because the bar is high that the responsibility to live in step with the gospel, verse 14, is entirely important, necessary, and needed. We don't know everything that was going on in Peter's heart. What we do know is that his leadership failed in this situation. It failed. Good leadership leads people to Jesus. Bad leadership leads people away from Jesus. Barnabas is case in point, right? He's leading them away from Jesus. However, Paul does not dismiss his brother Peter. As upset he would have been, he doesn't dismiss him. Instead, Paul reminds Peter that the root of his sin is the result of not applying the correct remedy to his sin. Paul says plainly, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one is justified. Paul's point to Peter in verse 15 is that they both knew the Jewish law. They both grew up good Jews. Paul isn't naive to what is going on. Paul gets the sin going on in Peter's heart. And because Paul gets it, he is the right person to call out Peter for being a fill-in-the-blank. Paul does more than call him out, though. He reminds him of truth. The way for Peter to overcome his sin is to apply the truth of the gospel to his life. Peter needs to remember that his Greek brothers and sisters have been equally justified before God because of Christ. Therefore, there is only one class of people in the body of Christ. For Paul, it is the same song, but different dance. He is defending the gospel of grace, which leads to freedom for all who are in Christ. Now, Paul is getting specific about how a person is set free by the gospel of grace. And this is what Paul reminds Peter of. Paul says in more specific terms that a person cannot be made right with God. A person cannot be justified. I keep using that word. Justification, justified. You can't be justified by works. A person is only justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16. In verse 16, faith and works, in the context of this word justification, which I'll define in a moment, are pinned up against each other. One path leads to life and freedom. The other path leads to ongoing slavery and bondage. Um, smart theologian, Pastor Philip Reichen, says this better than me. The reason faith justifies is that it takes hold of Christ. We are acceptable to God, not by keeping the law ourselves, but by trusting in the only man who ever did keep it, Jesus Christ. In verse 16, the word justified shows up three times 
it actually shows up for the first time in the book of Galatians. Up to this point, you're not going to find that word in Galatians, but we read it here for the first time, and we read it three times. The reformer, Martin Luther, says this about the doctrine of justification. If the article of justification be once lost, then all is true, then all, then is all true Christian doctrine lost. What he is saying is that if you remove the doctrine of justification from Christianity, you lose Christianity. Justification is a big deal. Um, It is the crown jewel, one said, about Christian theology. It's the crown jewel. And it would do our souls well to grasp the profundity of justification. So, what does justification mean? Why does Paul mention it here after calling out Peter? Justification is a legal term, so for all you law and order fans out there, just think dun-dun-dun. Legal term, borrowed from the law courts, justification is the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. To justify is to declare a person not guilty, innocent, or righteous. In the Bible, justification refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which God puts a sinner right with himself, not by not only pardoning, pardoning and quitting uh, the person, uh, but accepting him or her and treating him or her as righteous. The doctrine of justification is critical to understand if you want to know what it means to have faith. Let me go back to this, this courtroom analogy. Hopefully this will be helpful for you. I think this is what Peter forgot. Imagine for a moment you're on trial, right? You're on trial. The cards are stacked against you. There's no doubt you deserve condemnation for your sin. And before the judge drops the gavel to declare you guilty and execute the punishment you deserve, another person stands up, a person perfect in every respect, and he pleads for your pardon. And not only does he plead for your pardon, but he's willing to take on your punishment. All you need to do is turn from your sin. That's the word we call repentance, turning from sin and trust in the person taking on your punishment. The result is that you are now made right before the judge. You are no longer to receive the condemnation that you know you deserve. And then you walk out of the courtroom free. Where Galatians is going to lead us, free. You are free. Now, I, I grant that every analogy falls short, but I hope you see the significance of justification all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, which means all people, all people deserve condemnation and hell, but God the Father provides a way to be justified through his Son, Jesus Christ. He took on our sin and set us free from the power of sin. He grants eternal life. So when God looks upon a person who has repented of sin and put faith in Jesus, he doesn't see a rebel see a rebel. You know what he sees? You know, God the Father sees a son or a daughter. That's what he sees. And he looks on his son, sons and daughters with affection and love and joy. God the Father sees Christ in you. I'll talk more in the weeks ahead about 
justification, but I want to provide you one more consequence of being justified before God. It may seem obvious, but it's easy to forget. Here is the promise you can bank on. I'm glad God gives promises and keeps his promises. Here's a promise you can bank on if you've put faith in Christ and you've been justified by God. It's Romans 8.1. Remember I said the opposite of justification is condemnation? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. We're going to see in Galatians 5 and 6 how the spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. For now, let's just focus on that word now in Romans 8.1. Now. Noon in the Greek, three-letter word in the Greek. The adverb now emphasizes your present standing before God. You are not condemned because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. You are not condemned because God has called you, saved you, and has adopted you into his family. You are not condemned, so live as if you are not condemned. Too many Christians walk around in shame, feeling the condemnation, whether it be how they grew up or whatever. There is no condemnation right now for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel that is being justified before a holy and living God. And we always forget, right? We forget that. What what Paul rejects is that because you are not condemned, then you can live however you want, whenever you want. This kind of thinking also creates hypocrisy. Just ask Peter. Living justified means living in a manner that honors God. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ is about setting you free to obey the law of the Spirit. Using the same language in verse 14, Paul is going to tell us in Galatians 5.25 to stay in step with the Spirit. A Christian is able to walk in the Spirit while the truth of justification finds its place in the depths of our souls. So circling back to Peter and Paul one last time. Paul's appeal to Peter was not to change his behavior. Here's how we can think about it. Whether it's parenting or walking with another brother or sister in Christ in this church, a plea to change a person's behavior is to put a band-aid on a much deeper problem. The band-aid is going to come off eventually, and if the root issue isn't treated, the the behavior will continue to exist. Yes, Paul pointed out Peter's sin, back to my opening story, my roommate pointed out my sin. That was good, but he knew that his behavior was the result of something that runs to the heart. Peter was not living in step with the truth of the gospel. He was not living as a man who had been justified by faith in Christ. Therefore, his fear got a hold of him. Peter capitulated to the circumcised party and to these other men who came from James. His fear caused him to treat the Greek brothers and sisters, as second-class citizens. But here's the good news for Peter. Here's the good news for us, right? 
the gospel and its power to save, I read earlier, Romans 1. The doctrine of justification is bigger than Peter's sin. It's bigger than your sin. It's bigger than my sin. We know Peter changed on this particular issue. I think Acts 10 tells us when this particular sin problem of Peter was dealt with once and for all. God met Peter in his hypocrisy. He used Paul, as I referenced this situation, this story in Acts 10. For us, for us today, we cling to the cross of Jesus Christ, knowing that our sin and our shame has been dealt with. We cling to the cross, knowing that we have been made right, we've been justified before God and set free because of Jesus. We rejoice knowing God continues to work in his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. God continues to work on us as we continue to exist in this church together. When a person stumbles, and you will stumble, when a person stumbles like Peter, yes, it is important to point out the sin. To do anything less will do a disservice to that person. But it is vastly more important to point your brother or sister in Christ to Jesus. Point into the gospel. Because that, it is only in pointing a person to the gospel and encouraging them to apply the gospel where true, lasting change takes place. I can tell you to stop doing something. Stop it. Don't. I'll probably do it tomorrow. But the brother in Christ said, hey, you need to apply the gospel to your life. You need to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. It's take the doctrine of justification, run it deep in your heart and your soul. That brings lasting change. That brings lasting change. It replaces our sin and our idols with a greater love for Jesus. That's what Peter needed to hear from Paul. And is that what, that's what we need to tell ourselves and each other every single day. We have hope and joy because of Jesus. We can change because of Jesus. We can extend grace, love, and mercy to each other because of Jesus.